welcome to the very first episode of Beyond the Indus, South Asia's soon-to-be premier fortnightly political podcast. First things first, it's only fair that we introduce ourselves. My name is Jar Shetty, and I'm an economist in training at HGW Berlin and host of the Cox Populi Show on Cox Radio, broadcast on Alex Berlin Terrestrial and around the world at thfradio.de. And I'm Joe Wallen. I've been the South Asia correspondent for the Daily Telegraph newspaper for four years, working across India, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka. From sedition charges to Sundays, I've, I've certainly seen it all. And like all good partnerships, this one began with a festive night out on Christmas Eve in Bombay. I spotted Joe from across the room, walked up to him, looked into his big, beautiful Caucasian eyes, and we spent the entire night talking about geopolitics. Yes, I mean, my Bollywood career was was definitely put on hold for us to discuss in detail the the macroeconomic breakdown of the Sri Lankan economy. As it trust us, we are a blast at any party. Now, we thought there was a real gap in the market to discuss the key issues and topics in South Asia over a podcast for both an audience in the region itself and then further afield. And South Asia is a really interesting region. It's a land that produced things like Buddhism and yoga, but it also has two nuclear-powered rivals facing off against each other, as well as the world's longest-running communist insurgency. You have the world's fastest-growing economies side-by-side with the largest concentration of poverty in the world. And untangling this quagmire of cultures, history, economics, and geopolitics is difficult, even for South Asians. Now, there are an increasing number of South Asia watchers globally, and the region has never been so politically and economically important, certainly in recent history. And we'll hope you enjoy listening to some insight from some of the region's top thinkers, politicians, activists, journalists, and historians, and even the occasional pearl of wisdom from me and Tushar ourselves. Joe, so where do we begin? So when, when me and Tushar were discussing themes for this first podcast, we felt there was really only one place to start, and that was in Pakistan. The country has dominated the headlines in South Asia so far this year, but really for all the wrong reasons. Now, Islamabad is experiencing the worst economic crisis in its history. Inflation has soared to over 50%. The cost of essential foodstuffs like rice and flour have doubled since January alone. Thousands of shipping containers uh, of life-saving medicines lay idle in the country's ports, while fuel has become an expensive luxury for many. Now, over the last, over the last week, you know, the situation really appeared to have hit rock bottom when at least 10 people tragically died at food aid distribution sites during stampedes. And Pakistan's political climate is unfortunately anything but stable. The country's current prime minister, Shehbaz Sharif, is locked in a bitter power struggle with a man described as the enfant terrible of Pakistani politics, a cricket star who led Pakistan's national team to glory, a reformed playboy turned Islamic politician, and an occasional patron of black magic, former Prime Minister Imran Khan. Despite Khan's good looks, his apparent popularity with the Pakistani public, and his dabbling into the dark arts, none of this could prevent him from being deposed from power on April 5, 2022. And today, the country's all-powerful military and intelligence services who facilitated this overthrow appear to be ready to do anything to stop him returning to power. And if this wasn't enough, the Tariqi Taliban, an insurgent group with links to the Afghan Taliban, have broken their ceasefire with the Pakistani government and are launching attacks at whim across the country. So how did Pakistan, the world's fifth most populous country, a nation that is nuclear-armed and borders both India and China, get to this point of polycrisis. So we're very fortunate this week to have been joined by Dr. Mifta Ismail, one of Pakistan's leading economists. 
twice Pakistan's finance minister as recently as 2022, as well as the former chairman of the Pakistan Board of Investment and an economist with the International Monetary Fund, few Pakistanis are as well-placed as Dr. Ismail to shine some lights on the country's current economic woes. So welcome to be on the Indus, Dr. Ismail. Uh, first, I should offer a hearty Ramadan Mubarak. I mean, what's your plans for the festival period this year? Well, thank you so much uh, for uh, bringing me on your podcast. Um, the Eid uh, is like a family affair always, and uh, I intend to spend it with my family. So in the 1960s, Pakistan was actually one of the better performing economies in Asia. So what did it get right then, and what is it getting so wrong now? So I think uh, up until 1990s, we were doing reasonably well. To be very honest, uh, and in 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 South Asia and elsewhere in the developing world, you know, especially in a country like Pakistan, which is a young country growing pretty fast, uh, getting growth is never a problem. Getting growth is not that difficult. Managing growth has been a problem for Pakistan and and for the countries around the world. Uh, we were doing pretty well until the 1990s, or reasonably well, I should say, not as well as the superstars of Far East Asia, but but still well. Uh, but I think that. Uh, into the 1990s, we seem to have lost our way. Uh, one factor has been, uh, you know, this law and order issue, a perception of the law and order issue in Pakistan with the Taliban and other stuff, and that has, uh, you know, uh, uh, that has sort of tempered or you know reduced the amount of foreign investments coming into Pakistan, foreign direct investment particularly. That stops the flow or slows the flow of technology transfers. And uh, where we have got foreign investments is actually only to cater to the domestic market, like telephone companies and all that stuff. But we've not had the foreign investment, like, for instance, uh, Samsung doing investments in Vietnam and now exporting $68 billion worth of mobile phones out of Vietnam. That, that sort of investment where Nike or Adidas or companies, you know, exporting to Nike and Adidas will, will invest in Pakistan, that has not happened. Uh, one, because of this law and other problem. Since 2000, we've made certain changes to, uh, uh, 2010, we've made certain changes to our budget, which renders our federal deficits uh, pretty high. And when you have a very high fiscal deficit, you end up having a high current account deficit. And that, that means that you run out of dollars, essentially. And so that way, that is one of the reasons why, you know, we get into this boom and bust cycles. How has the taxation system, or lack of one, played its part in the current crisis? Pakistan has actually failed, really, in, in this endeavor to, to, to substantially increase our tax base. You know, it's been around 10, 11, 12 percent. Uh, and then when we restate our economy after every 10 years or so, you know, look at the, you know, correct GDP numbers, then it turns out that, you know, that tax for GDP falls again because the economy expands, but the tax remains the same. Uh, primarily because we only rely on one government, which is the federal government to raise taxes, and we don't let either the local government raise taxes, and our provinces don't collect taxes. Essentially, they are funded by grants from the federal government, and the provinces basically spend what the central government gives them, Plus a little bit more now in the last few years, but but since we only have one uh, uh, source of income with federal government, uh, so we are not able to really tax. Then we've given certain exemptions to powerful interest groups. I mean, we don't, pro for instance, tax property, which is a huge thing, or land or agricultural income, and and so uh, or even traders and, and, and retail sectors. And, and since the service sector has become fairly large in Pakistan. Agriculture is, you know, a reasonably large sector. So much of our tax uh, is based based on manufacturing. That actually also hampers manufacturing growth 
but it also plots the collection of taxes. And I have this thing that unless and until we get to 15% tax to GDP and 15% exports to GDP, we'll continue to go back to the IMF every so often. Yeah, so I think the solutions are certainly out there, but as you say, the political and economic world to implement them is, is perhaps the greatest challenge. There is a real sense of deja vu here, right, Tushar? Yeah, it's certainly not the first time that Pakistan has found itself in dire economic straits. So, Dr. Isma, um, in addition to the structural problems with the Pakistan economy, uh, there's also this current, as it's been called, the poly crisis, these multiple things that have come together at a very inopportune moment. And this does seem to be extremely severe, uh, even looking into Pakistan history. But it, it's Pakistan has also been to the IMF 21 times before this, either for a loan or a bailout. So, could you explain Pakistan's history with the IMF and also what makes this particular crisis so much more severe than the ones before? Okay, if we start with the current crisis, the body crisis has now been called. Uh, so, I mean, you know, the the, the, the Russian-Ukraine uh, war, you know, which has sent oil prices and especially LNG prices or gas prices, you know, to the, to the sky. Uh, has really uh, hampered Pakistan because we now depend a lot on 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 those uh, I mean and imports of both uh, you know petroleum products as well as LNG, and and so that really in you know given that we had an inefficient power sector we had reasonably good generation but very bad transmission and distribution and very bad tax collection and these are all government uh, departments, and so that has really you know devastated our power sector economy and has increased our uh, the the increased uh, the the tariffs, power tariffs, you know, so much so that, you know, if you are a shopkeeper and you just set up a solar power panel during the daytime, you'll save, you know, a lot more money than the grid power, which how it should not be, but it is. Um, so, and, and then, of course, the prices of all commodities have gone up, inflation has gone up, interest has gone up, you know. And Pakistan, which is a large borrower of both dollars and rupees, you know, has seen, you know, inflation go up and interest rates go up, and that has really been devastating for our government finances. Uh, so that was the other thing, and then uh, you know the, the 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 European countries going into some sort of a recession. The American, uh, you know, large American retailers cutting down on inventories after the freights have gone down. That has also had a bad impact on our exporters. So I mean, really, it has been a perfect storm uh, in terms of the economic fundamentals. Then we've had our political changes here. You know, we changed the government once. Uh, through a no confidence movement, but then there was a lot of political, uh, you know, uh, agitation since then. So that's really not helped. Uh, and then we, the last uh, two years, have uh, have, uh, have uh, uh, you know, uh, gone off our IMF program three times. And now, you know, so you know, because of political concentration. But then, if you look back, you know, over twenty-one times, only once in from 2013 to 2016, were we able to actually finish an IMF program. Otherwise, no Pakistani political government or even a military government has been stable enough or powerful enough or intelligent enough, perhaps, uh, to be able to, you know, carry through the program. You know, there's people are always looking behind their shoulders. There's always some political event going on. And it's policymakers have always found it expedient to, you know, then give up the program. And, and unless and until you continue to do the right thing, unless and until you let the you know rupee go in the market and be at the price which is determined by supply and demand, unless and until you take care of your global domestic finances, unless and until you increase your tax base and tax tax collection, you will continue to have you know these problems. Then, which is why we have to go to a lender of last resort. 
So the war in Ukraine has been devastating right across the region. You know, we've seen surging inflation in India, Bangladesh and Sri Lanka also approaching the IMF. You know, many countries in the region have long been fuel and food importers. But how are the citizens of Pakistan now paying the price? It's, so there are several aspects to it. Uh, the, uh, I mean, we, we had, I think, last week, uh, week on week, I mean, year-on-year year inflation for the week period of about 40% or 30% overall inflation, food inflation, 40%. And Pakistan is normally a low-inflation country. We normally have 7 8% inflation, not more than that, or maybe 9% inflation, not more than that. And food inflation is normally lower than that. And and rural inflation is normally lower. Now things have, you know, gone on their head, and you know, our food inflation is actually higher than your other inflation. Uh, but but about three quarters of the food that we consume is actually produced locally. So one of the things that's happened is that as food prices have gone up, you know, farm incomes have also gone up. So that's why you don't see so much devastation. Otherwise, you know, you would think that in a country there already, uh, you know, uh, and depending on how you measure poverty, but you know. Uh, in, in let's say 75, uh, 75 or you know, million people were in poverty out of 230 million people, you know, uh, and this is a bigger, uh, you know, more liberal uh, estimate of poverty. Uh, of course, you know, and, and even if you look at $1 a day, there were so many millions, you know, living in that poverty. Uh, you know, this this it, this is devastating. It is devastating to the poor, especially the urban poor with, with wages and fixed incomes and wages being sticky, for, you know, over, over at least a year or so. Uh, but farm incomes have gone up, so 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 rural area I think is is reasonably protected. But nonetheless, we do import edible oil, um, you know, and and with the dollar going up, and with the and you know the prices of edible oil reaching as high as seventeen hundred dollars a ton, they've since come back to I think eleven hundred. Uh, with we do import a lot of milk powder, that's gone up. You know, if we either import um, a lot of medicines or import almost every. ABI, the active ingredient in medicine. So, so, so it has become really tough, not just for for the poor, uh, which who have always been suffering. You know, I mean, the poor in Pakistan and, and elsewhere in South Asia have always lived at the edge of poverty anyway, or you know, under poverty and all that stuff, edge of hunger, you know, edge of malnutrition. It's the middle classes really this are, that are feeling the pinch, and that's why you hear so much about this. Uh, unfortunately, in in our society. You know what happens to the middle classes, and what happens in Karachi, Lahore, and Islamabad is given and you know disproportionate you know uh, uh, you know attention in, in on the media and elsewhere, uh, and it's probably true of all countries, I suppose. Uh, but but now you see that middle classes are suffering, and that's why it's so much of the talk of the you know talk uh, in the country. We've seen many Pakistanis say that this is the worst crisis they've ever experienced. I recently produced a report from Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, a province in northwest Pakistan, where diabetics said they were unable to afford their life-saving medicines. It seems that this is already proving to be a deadly crisis. Yeah, and added to that is the impact of the devastating floods that displaced over 30 million people in Pakistan. What's not helping is that there seems to be a political crisis ongoing in Pakistan right now. Could you help unpack that for us? Well, I mean, I, I, I think I was negligent in not ma- mentioning the floods that have really, I mean, you know, also increased uh, the, you know, the prices of, of, of wheat and, 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 and rice and onions and other stuff. And and, and, and so that's been horrible. Um, and, and again, that coming at the, you know, at just, just, just the worst possible time. Uh, so the political crisis is this, uh, which had a change of government. 
the outgoing PTI government has come up with all sorts of narratives about how this was an American conspiracy and then now how this was the conspiracy by a foreign army chief and this and that and all of that stuff. Uh, what's made the crisis worse is that it was only one year left and now this is an election year. And in the terms of the, 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 terms of, uh, the parliament expire in August. So we will have to have an elections by October. Uh, so whether you're doing an IMF agreement or whether you want you know donations from or, or help from the friendly countries, deposits and all that, nobody knows who's going to be in power in October uh, after the elections, uh, or you can't be sure, um, and you don't know you know what happens. So there's a lot of uncertainty, and in, in, for instance, a caretaker, and we have the system of between August and uh, October, there will be a caretaker government, a neutral caretaker government that is going to have the elections. So that's going to uh, that's going to also uh, uh, you know the, 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 that's that government will be there for three months, and 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 the IMF would not want to sign a long-term three-year agreement with that government because that the government doesn't have a mandate. And right now we have in two provinces the caretaker government, and there's some controversy going on about elections. There's the court case right now in front of the Supreme Court. Uh, the Supreme Court is also divided. Some judges think one way, other judges think another way. Uh, just the Chief Justice makes a bench of judges that he thinks are going to go his way. So, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it's a lot of stuff going on right now in Islamabad. So it's fair to say that the situation isn't looking great right now. But here at Beyond the Indus, uh, the theme of our podcast is a requiem for Pakistan. So Dr. Mifta Ismail, how does Pakistan get out of this mess? What are the necessary and politically feasible steps the country must take to extricate itself from this crisis? So, I mean, uh, uh, you know, I mean, I am an optimist by nature, and I think that every challenge or every crisis is an opportunity, and we have to really convert this crisis into an opportunity. And I actually am pretty sure that we will because there's no other choice. Uh, when you talk about political feasibility, political feasibility is, you know, you consider that only when you have two viable alternatives. We have no viable alternative. We have to, A, get an IMF support. We have to then, you know, make fundamental changes to our economic structure and governance structure so that we don't get into these political and especially economic crises. We have to see how we fund our government. We have to, you know, empower the provinces and the local governments to raise their own taxes. We have to give. We'll have to, you know, reduce federal deficits, which will then reduce also our current account deficit. We'll have to let the currency be. We'll have to convert our domestic manufacturing towards exports manufacturing, and I mean, and and all of these things we'll have to do. I mean, so we have no choice. Uh, so the equilibrium, as you talk about, I mean, either we 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 make the fundamental choices and then we start growing like we used to in the nineties, and, and and you know, like consistent seven eight percent growth. And, and that's been done. I mean, India and, India and Bangladesh do this. Uh, you know, Vietnam has done this. You know, and, and, and the Far Eastern countries, China, Taiwan, Japan, Korea. I mean, they grew by 20% over, you know, 10% over 20 years. And, 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 you know, and if you do this for 20 years, you can, you know, quadruple your income. Uh, uh, and, and we need to do all of that. And uh, I, I mean, I still think that we will be able to do it. But if you're not able to do it, then, I mean, then, you know, the other equilibrium is not a very savory equilibrium and I don't even want to you know consider going there I think there is a recognition at least like right across the political spectrum that current conditions simply can't continue I mean even Pakistan's politicians have had their perks removed no more five-star hotels no business class flights 
no luxury cars. We really are into unprecedented territory. Uh, but Dr. Ismail, I do want to square into one aspect of your plan there. You've repeatedly stressed the need to increase exports in order to survive Pakistan's economic fortunes. However, in the current global macroeconomic climate, that might prove to be difficult. What are some of the sectors that you believe that Pakistan could become globally competitive in? So if you look at, uh, you know, uh, our competitive advantage, you know, or competitive advantage, I mean, one of the things that we have a lot of is people, right? And then our wages are low and productivity is reasonably good. And uh, if you look at the, you know, the ladder through which all developing countries have developed, I mean, you know, that was basically textiles because textile, you know, sewing t-shirts or denim jeans and all that stuff took a lot of labor so those countries could do it more efficiently, you know, in China and before that Korea or Taiwan could do it much more so than, let's say, Belgium or, 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 or Canada could. Um, then, for instance, even when you look at India, for instance, and it has huge IT exports. But IT is also, if you divide it in two, three types, I mean, you know, one type is, you know, writing software engines and high-tech software. But the other type, and which is, you know, which furniture really needs very good skilled labor, uh, skilled engineers, but the other type is business process outsourcing, where you're trying, you know, trust driving, you know, medicine, medical, uh, you know, notes and, 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 you know, answering phone banks, you know, just answering phone calls, you know, and manning phone banks. That's also a labor intensive work. You know, it's, it's labor, which is uh, not very high tech and it's labor, which is sort of English speaking and all that stuff. So we have to focus on a textile state. Pakistan focuses on, on home textile because we used to grow cotton, which was very, uh, which is still is very, conducive to making bed sheets and home textiles, but not fine textiles. Uh, what Bangladesh did was rather than focusing, because it had no cotton, on what on, on coarse cotton grounds, it actually tried to do what the world was asking for. We've not done that yet. We were actually, we've so far done not what the world is asking for, but what, you know, we could do. Uh, but we have to sort of move towards that, you know. Textile is still our big thing. All these knickknacks, the plastic things, you know, the 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 pots and pans and light engineering like fans and and, and lamps and stuff like that. Uh, you know, some business process outsourcing work. Uh, you know, which is which is kind of pretty big. Uh, you know, that sort of thing is is what we need to concentrate on. And and obviously, the biggest export we have is labor. Uh, the single biggest, even bigger than textile. We, we get $30 billion of remittances from our uh, Pakistanis working in the Middle East and elsewhere. Uh, and, and we need to also up their skills so that, you know, Pakistanis who go out are not just working as drivers, but are working as electricians and vendors and making, you know, more money there. So, I mean, for I think for the foreseeable future, I still see textile, you know, business process outsourcing, light engineering, uh, you know, that sort of thing. You're not very high tech, not, I mean, we're not going to make MRI machines, you know, we're not going to make, you know, uh, uh, we're not going to be able to design semiconductors in Pakistan, but there are other things that we could do still, uh, which the world needs. So one of the most interesting stories I, I think I read last year was on how Sialkot, uh, a city in northeastern Pakistan, was producing around 70% of the world's supply of footballs, including those that were used at the Qatar World Cup. I mean, while this is a small scale industry, it shows the country can be globally dominant in, in the manufacturing sector. Well, lastly, uh, I want to delve into this initiative that we started called Reimagining Pakistan. Could you tell us what inspired you to start that initiative and what do you hope to achieve from it? You know, I mean, we have in, the, in this century, for instance, we've seen a few years of martial law. And then since 2008, you know, uh, democratic rule for the last 15 years. 
In that 15 years, all the major political parties, the Pakistan People's Party has governed for five years. Pakistan Muslim League has governed for five, for, you know, this coalition, six years. And Pakistan Tariq Saf PTI of Imran Khan has governed for four years. So all have got, you know, a shot. Plus, we've also seen a martial law period, you know, uh, with technocrats and all that. And, and the one thing you've not seen is a substantial improvement in the living standards of Pakistanis. And Pakistan, perhaps more than most countries, is a very elite-centered society. You know, only 2% of Pakistani children go through poor levels and A-levels. The 97% or 97.5% of Pakistanis, you know, study in our, what is what we call metric and intermediate stream, you know, the local schooling system. But if you look at the three best universities in Pakistan, the Lahore University of Management Sciences, the IBA, and the Institute of Business Administration, and the Khan Medical University, uh, most of the students are from O-levels and A-levels. Uh, we have one school in Lahore, Hutchinson College, you know, uh, which sometimes gives half of our Supreme Court judges. You know, Karachi Grammar School will give half of, uh, you know, our top professionals, you know, and these are very... Um, uh, I mean, these are run like the way these since, uh, I mean, they've been running like this the same 200 years, you know, 150 years, you know. Uh, they still have, you know, a white uh, gentleman from Britain, you know, being the principal of these schools and all of that stuff. I mean, this is a very Gora school, if you may, if I may use the word, you know. Uh, and, 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 and this is crazy. You know, we are in a country with 200,000 schools, no one school should be providing half your judges or half your rich people. Uh you know, and, and, and if 97% of your children, you know, go from the metric and intermediate stream and only 2% uh, go to, you know, O-levels, these are the kids then who go and control Pakistan, who go on, you know, the best jobs, who go abroad, who get to go to the best Pakistani and foreign universities. That makes no sense. So, I mean, so we've A, left out those people. We've not educated them. We, you know, we have 5.5 million new babies born every year. We don't have the resources to school them. Uh, we don't have the resources to even feed them. That's just like, you know, the two of the you know, largest cities of Pakistan, uh, Rawalpindi and Faisalabad, have a population of 5.5 million. We add that every year. That's not enough. I mean, that's that's not good for Pakistan. We have no population planning. We have no population programs, control programs. Uh, we spend 2,000 billion rupees on education, but, you know, half of our children are not in school. The average Pakistani child fails in math and science. So there are some fundamental differences things that we need to do in Pakistan. And so we feel that by changing political parties, you know, and yes, there are partisans who would say that, oh, yes, my guy will come and, you know, uh, you know, this will be manna from heaven, but nothing of the sort will happen because we've seen all political parties get a chance at governance. And unless and until we make structural changes, we empower the local governments, we devolve governments to the local level, uh, we bring in voucher schools for you know and, and give children vouchers and all of those things you know these things will not happen one of the things that i think now i mean i am a free a believer in free markets but unless and until a measure of social justice is taken you know you can't you can't ask you know a driver's child you know who has not had a breakfast or who's not had dinner to compete with my child you know this is not gonna happen so, so you have to not completely level the playing level, you know, level the playing field, but you have to make some amends. I mean, you cannot have a sea of poverty and then expect Pakistan to grow. So we have to make positive changes in Pakistan. We have to make positive interventions to make poor people less poor, uneducated people less uneducated, and 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 if you know, 
uh, we educate only 2% of the people and 2% of the children in Pakistan really well. That means that 2% of the most brilliant kids are educated really well, but the 98% of the most brilliant kids are not even educated. They're working as maids in somebody's houses. They're working as, you know, carpenters in some shop and not in universities. So, so unless and until we now rethink how we've, you know, we, we as a nation is going to go forward, we will continue to fail our children. That is our basic thesis in that uh, reimagining Pakistan. And it's the reason we have so much traction, especially, you know, that middle, middle classes are, are, are responding to us on social media is not just because of the current, you know, poly crisis and, and, and political and economic mess that we are in, but now Pakistanis are seeing that, you know, within a sea of poverty, you know, you can't really have an island of prosperity, an island of excellence. You need to take all Pakistanis together. So thank you very much for joining us, Mr. Ismail. It, it's great to end our discussion on somewhat more of a positive note. And, and, and if, if you know anything about our cricket team, you know that we could be down, but we're never out. <laughs> thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, thanks. Thank you. That was Mifta Ismail, former finance minister of Pakistan. And Joe, I don't know if it's a great sign when the guy who was in charge of the economy is struggling to put up a brave face when talking about his country. But economics aside, if you want to get at the core of why Pakistan is floundering right now, you have to understand the political situation. As Mr. Ismail touched on that, the country's political crisis is only hampering things. And so it's only fair for our listeners that we dive into Pakistan's political power struggle. One unnamed Pakistani diplomat described it, I think more frustratingly than anything else, as a Desi Game of Thrones to me earlier this week. I mean, to be fair, most South Asian politics is reminiscent of Game of Thrones, with a lot more backstabbing and factionalism. But I think our next guest can help us unravel the primeval chaos that is the Pakistani political landscape today. Okay, so for our second guest this week, uh, on this week's episode, I should say, of Beyond the Indus, um, we're very fortunate to be joined by an absolute behemoth of South Asian current affairs, uh, Michael Kugelman. Uh, Michael is the South Asia Institute Director uh, at the Wilson Center, the US's leading policy forum on international geopolitics. And Michael also writes a weekly brief on South Asian current affairs and foreign policy. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Michael. Uh, how are you? Well, thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here and I'm well, thanks, and hope that you are as well. So, Michael, I guess we can talk about Pakistani politics without dealing with the elephant in the Darbar, which is Imran Khan. You know, I was in Berlin in 2018 when he first got elected, and speaking to Pakistani colleagues, you could hear the sense of excitement in their voices. They genuinely thought he was going to save Pakistan. Now, come April 2022, and he's been unceremoniously ousted from power. So, Michael, could you help our listeners understand exactly how that came to pass? I mean, why did the establishment decide that he had to go? And how exactly did they go about doing it? Yeah, so I think that uh, we have to go back to uh, November 2021, which was a key moment. At that point in time, Khan had been prime minister for more than three years, and uh, his relationship with the army was in a very good place. Uh, and you know, there's there's a widespread uh, there's a widespread view, which I believe it as well, that Khan was elected in 2018 because of uh, his support from the army and because of a number of, of of actions that the army took on his behalf in the lead up to the election that um, really tilted the the electoral scales in his favor, uh, and that includes um, a number of activities that interestingly we've seen have been done 
against Khan more recently, but you know things like some arrests of um, uh, members of, of of the Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz uh, party, as well as um, suddenly you had um, campaign rallies by uh, Khan's rivals that were not able to be seen on TV. So in effect, you had all these these things that were happening in the lead up to the 2018 election that benefited Khan and hurt his rivals, and so. He, he benefited from the military support. He had a great relationship with the army when he was prime minister for those first three years. So good, in fact, that the army was in even more involved in policy than it typically is. And that led to this, um, this, this idea of a hybrid regime where essentially Khan and other civilian leaders were basically sharing power with the army and everyone was okay with it. But then in November 2021, um, there was a disagreement between Khan and the army chief, General Bajwa at, at the time, a disagreement over the issue of the next uh, intelligence chief, who would be the next, not necessarily who would be the next intelligence chief, but the process used to select the new intelligence chief and the time frame for it as well. Khan thought that Bajwa, he didn't agree with the way Bajwa was handling it. Khan wanted to have more control over that process, even though it's customary for the army chief to to play that type of prominent role in the selection of the next uh, uh, intelligence chief. So that's when you had a falling out, or the beginnings of a falling out between the army chief and Khan. And there were s several other uh, issues that happened that drew the, that that really led to this uh, downfall in the relationship between the two men. One was a disagreement over. Um, the who who would be the next chief minister of the uh, province of, of Punjab, and I also believe that the military on the whole was growing increasingly concerned about uh, Khan's increasingly sharp uh, rhetoric against the West and the United States. Uh, the army uh, sees the West, including the United States, as key economic partner uh, for Pakistan. And at a moment when Pakistan's economy was starting to go downhill, that was not a good thing. So basically. Because you had this falling out between Khan and Bajwa, that I think opened the path for what would happen in April 2022, which was this no confidence vote in parliament, a perfectly constitutional thing to do. And Khan was the first prime minister uh, in Pakistan's history to, to lose a no confidence vote. And there's very good reason to believe that the army chief helped the opposition um, create the uh, the environment to allow for the parliament to uh, to vote Khan um, out of power. And that's where, you know, and that's where, you know, that was a key moment as well. And then of course the opposition at the time became the government. Uh, and that's where we are today. One final note on this, you know, I, I think that everyone talks about how, how, the, how Khan got along so well with, with the army chief and the military, but you know, it's interesting that on some levels he was never a good candidate to be a favorite son of the military in the sense that his personality was not the type of personality the army would like. Uh, to see from a from a civilian leader, from a prime minister, uh, the military likes to have pliant, weak uh, uh, civilian leaders and prime ministers. Khan is a very strong personality. He's very stubborn. He does not like to defer, but he was willing to put that all on hold because he really wanted the job of prime minister. He wanted to keep that job, and so he was willing to defer to the military's authority. But you know, at one point, you know, he just he he just you know he that that could only hold for so long. And then he had the spats with uh, with the army chief as I laid them out. For context for our listeners, Pakistan's army and intelligence have long been the country's power brokers. It's pretty much unheard of in Pakistan's history, really, for a prime minister to continue in power or be elected without their support. Agreed. And talking of which, what has happened since? 
I mean, it seems that Mr. Khan still enjoys huge support amongst Pakistanis. He stepped up his rallies and his crowd certainly grew. But then in November, he narrowly survived an assassination attempt of being shot four times in the legs. Who do you think was behind that? So, I mean, I, I don't know uh, who was who was behind the assassination attempt. I mean, it certainly could have been uh, the security establishment, uh, the military or the intelligence agencies. But I think it also, it could have well been a... Um, uh, you know some some faction of of the ruling uh, of the ruling coalition. I mean, there's the thing about Khan is that as an as an athlete, he, he united the country behind him. But ever since he became a political figure, yes, he's attracted significant levels of support. But he's also been a very divisive political figure. So he's attracted a lot of enemies. So I think there's all types of candidates, and there's also a number of analysts that have have suggested that perhaps some rogue elements of the security establishment uh, could have been behind this. Now, of course, the important thing here is that Khan himself, soon after the assassination attempt, you know, he very specifically identified several individuals within the security establishment that he thought were behind the uh, the attack. I don't know for sure, but I think for me, what stands out is that there's so many possibilities in terms of who could have who could have been behind that. But you know, it's it, it really is interesting this notion of popularity with Khan. Because I think it's common for people to say, well, look, his, his popularity has really grown since he was ousted, you know, in terms of you know, looking at how he's been able to consistently mobilize such huge numbers of people for his rallies, and also looking at how his party has performed quite well in a series of local uh, by-elections since his, since his ouster. And, uh, you know, the few public opinion surveys that have come out since his ouster have shown him uh, receiving a fair amount of, of popular support. But let's not forget that even before that, Going back a number of years, really going back to you know the early days of Khan as a political figure, he was able to generate uh, pretty significant um, levels of public support. Not on the line, not anywhere near uh, what he has now. But you know, this is someone that was a superstar. He was a celebrity. He was a huge name. He was a revered figure across Pakistan because of his success as an athlete and leading Pakistan to the world, the Cricket World Cup Championship in 1992. He was a hero and he had that name recognition. So that meant that when he, he came out in the late 90s, he formed his party and became a political figure. You know, he had that, that cachet, that name recognition, the adulation that so many Pakistanis expressed toward him as a, as a, as a, as a sports star. And his, his, his pillar, uh, corruption, anti-corruption, that was also something that captivated many people, particularly younger, middle-class, uh, urban constituencies who were fed up with what they believed to be this deep rot within the political uh, system. So he was able to draw on that. You know, he, he wasn't able to be elected for a long time until he got the military support. But let's not forget that you know, he did have significant levels of popular support. Now, I think that he's been, able, he's been able to build on that support since his ouster, mainly, quite frankly, because the government, the current government, has continuously shot itself in the foot, both feet. Uh, it's, it's performed very poorly. Uh, it's been unable to deal with this economic crisis. Uh, and I would add to that Khan's uh, masterful ability to craft this very powerful victimization narrative. And victimization narratives always play well in Pakistani politics. You know, He argued that he was you know, illegitimately ousted by this effort led by the army. And at one point he was saying the US government was behind this. That really, and many people in Pakistan believe that, not just his supporters. So that is something that helped elevate his popularity as well. And then as his government, or pardon me, as Khan's, as many of Khan's supporters and aides have been harassed and in times arrested by this government, 
as this government is engaged in retributive justice, retributive politics against Khan and his aides, the assassination attempt on Khan, all of that, I think, added to his popularity, which already was considerable um, for some time before that. Yeah, Imran Khan really has come out all guns blazing, hasn't he? I've never seen someone in Pakistan so aggressively go after the army, intelligence services, ruling politicians, judiciary, you name it. I mean, it's a bold strategy. Yeah, not one that usually ends well. Uh, but still, as you say, Michael, it does really appear to be working with the electorate. I mean, last week, a, a Gallup Pakistan poll showed that Mr. Khan enjoys 62% favorable support amongst Pakistanis, compared to just 32% the incumbent, the current prime minister, Shabazz Sharif. I mean, no wonder Mr. Khan is calling for early elections. But will the planned election in October even go ahead? Right. Just a lot of question marks right now. I think one of the biggest uh, on the biggest question is the actual election calendar. Uh, indeed, you know, national elections are scheduled to occur uh, by the fall, October or November. But um, you know, as as, as you know, uh, there are two provincial elections in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa and Punjab that were expected uh, or constitutionally were supposed to take place in early April. But then the election commission in recent days announced that they would be postponed until October, which is something that, of course, Khan has 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 vigorously rejected, um, and it certainly is one could argue is unconstitutional. The courts are going to be weighing in on that, and if the courts were to uphold that decision of the election commission, quite frankly, I think that would pave the way for the government, the national government, to essentially. Put itself in a position where it would feel perfectly comfortable postponing the national elections. And there's been there's already been some buzz and, and reports that the government in Islamabad could use the uh, severe levels of economic stress in the country, as well as the resurgent threat of terrorism, as pretexts to indefinitely postpone the elections, which again, per the constitution, need to happen by October or November. Now, the government has been very vague about this. I mean, I think casually would say, yes, there'll be elections, but it is not formally committed to an election date. Keep in mind as well that in Pakistan, per the constitution, before an election takes place, the uh, the National uh, Assembly, the legislature must be dissolved three months before the election date. And then you have a caretaker government come in to oversee the election planning. So, you know, we're not only talking about October slash November, we're talking about three months before that. Um, and given all the uncertainty now, I think that's made a lot of people very nervous about what's going to come. So just to keep our listeners in the loop, Imran Khan has been slapped with over 100 cases, uh, seemingly politically motivated, in order to get him disbarred from electoral politics in Pakistan. For the former cricket captain, this is the unholy century that he never asked for. So I guess the big question, uh, if we presume, uh, perhaps we should never presume anything when it comes to Pakistan's politics is whether Mr. Khan will get to stand in this election at all. I mean, at the end of March, police attempted to storm Mr. Khan's house in Lahore and arrest him. Uh, while they were unsuccessful, they still clashed with his supporters. I mean, do we think well, he'll even get to stand? In terms of what could, what could happen to Khan, you know, it's been very interesting how there have been so many false starts where we've heard the government, we've heard police say that there is an arrest warrant for Khan, he's going to be arrested. And it hasn't happened. There have been several times over the last few months where there have been attempts to arrest him, and they haven't taken place. And you know, of course, the most recent case it became violent, where the police came to Khan's home in Lahore. They were met by uh, large numbers of his very impassioned supporters, some of whom started throwing stones at the police. 
And then the police uh, got into a violent tussle with uh, PTI, uh, with, with Khan supporters, uh, but they didn't, they did not arrest him. And I think it's an interesting question. Why has, why has the state repeatedly say that they're going to arrest him and they haven't followed through? Khan supporters would say that basically the police just get scared when they come across this large number of supporters. Um, I think that uh, uh, critics of the government would also say, well, this just shows how incompetent and indecisive the government is. It can't decide what to do. It makes a just decision to go through with an arrest and then it doesn't follow through. I think another possible explanation is that on the contrary, the government is simply, for lack of a better term, trying to play with Khan's head. Try to make him nervous. Try to you know make him worry and not know what's going to happen. It's already quite clear that Khan is very concerned about his well-being, about his security. He keeps saying that there are threats to his life, and my goodness, he was almost assassinated a few months ago. So you can't blame him for that. But this government, which which hates Khan with a vengeance, wants to make him uncomfortable. I don't know what the time frame is for an eventual arrest, but I would say, quite frankly, that I think the most the the the, the senior army leadership does not want to see Khan contest elections because they recognize that if elections were free and fair and they happen, he likely would win. My sense is that the government, the civilian leaders and military leaders will try to create a strong case for Khan's disqualification from public, uh, from public office. The election commission disqualified Khan in October, but Khan's legal team has been contesting that in court. And so I think that, um, you know, the, 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 the army and the, um, the government leadership may hope to develop a strong enough case that it could withstand any challenges from the election committee, any challenges from Khan's team, so that the courts can essentially uphold that decision. And we've seen very interesting rhetoric in recent days where the prime minister has said that Khan has instigated a smear campaign against the army chief. That could be added to the, to the dossier on the disqualification case. And we've also seen reports that the, uh, the, the political leadership believes that um, Khan's party is a party of miscreants led by militants. So there could be efforts at play to even to ban the party. That would make it easier to justify a disqualification of Khan as well. So I think that's what we have to look at, the possibility of a disqualification of Khan, which if it goes through, would mean that he would be ineligible to run in the elections whenever they happen. So what might come next, Michael? I mean, are we, are we likely to see further arrest of Pakistan over the upcoming weeks? You know, could the situation even evolve into a full-on civil war uh, as such? We've seen some fairly inflammatory comments on both sides. I, I mean, Rana Sanola, Pakistan's current interior minister, you know, made some rather alarming comments at the end of March, saying that either Khan exists or, or we do. I mean, the situation appears to be very concerning. Yeah, I'm very struck by how many uh, typically uh, sober analysts and, and sort of sober, cautious thinkers, people I respect, are now talking about the possibility of uh, significant levels of unrest and violence in Pakistan. So that's that certainly is very troubling. And indeed, if you look at the rhetoric, it's not only rhetoric coming from the government, but Khan, of course, has, has also been incendiary in his rhetoric. For him to actually call out names of people in the, in the, in the army and in the intelligence agencies that he claimed were behind his assassination, I mean, that's huge, absolutely huge. Um, so, you know, I, I think that we have to look at this idea of dialogue. It's notable that in recent days, Khan and several uh, uh, government leaders, including Prime Minister uh, Sharif, have said that they would be open to the idea of a dialogue, which to me seems a bit tone deaf with where things are right now. I mean, there's so much polarization, so much toxicity, so much poison in the political environment that my sense is that 
any potential off-ramp to prevent the country from sliding into chaos and anarchy, any possible off-ramp, including the idea of dialogue, to me, it seems unlikely. And even if by we suspend our disbelief and Khan is willing to sit at the table with, with Sharif and other leaders of the governing coalition, and he'd have to have military, he'd have to have the army chief of that conversation too. Even if that were to happen, I find it hard to believe that either side would be willing to make concessions or compromises given the current climate. And I think it, it's also notable that right after we heard Khan and Sharif talking about their willingness to do dialogue, very soon after that, you had another violent confrontation when Khan was when he was when he went to uh, to accord in Islamabad to make an appearance, and you had his supporters out there, and they clashed with the police. That I think was an example of just how difficult it will be to get to a situation where both sides would be comfortable um, sitting down. But you know, on this, I'd go back to what I said before. I think that if there's a clear sense that elections are definitely going to happen in October or November. I think that could be a potential de-escalating factor that could reduce the likelihood of severe violence. But you know, Khan and his supporters say that there's several red lines. Uh, you know, a lack of ele- elections not happening, an arrest of Khan, Khan's disqualification. Obviously, God forbid, if he were, if if there was another uh, attempted assassination, if it were successful, then all bets are off. So there, there certainly are several things that could happen that I think could be triggers for significant levels of civil unrest and and violence. But Fortunately, we're not there yet. Talking of instability, Michael, I was reading the story you retweeted from Nikkei Asia about the increasing instability and security challenges in Pakistan from terrorist groups like the Tehreek-e Taliban Pakistan and pro-independence movements in Balochistan. How have these groups been able to take advantage of the broader political insecurity in the country? And how do you see these movements playing out? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And just sort of to to get at the earlier reference you made to this large-scale political uh, instability, I think it's very important to emphasize the fact that the army itself is experiencing internal turmoil. That's a huge part of this story. You have, um, you know, and really it's it's because of the issue of Khan, that low a number of low mid-level rank officers support Khan and want him to succeed, whereas the senior most army leadership uh, don't want him to be in politics anymore. And I think that the new army chief has had a major challenge on his hands in terms of how to deal with that those differences within the army. So to your question about how these violent actors have tried to capitalize on the instability, you know, absolutely. I mean, the, the TTP, the Pakistani Taliban, has been making a, a comeback uh, that certainly did not begin only after political uh, instability um, became a bigger thing in Pakistan. You have to go back to, to 2018 when the group got a new leader who succeeded in bringing back a number of TTP splinters that made it that made the group stronger. And certainly after the Taliban takeover in Afghanistan, that emboldened the Pakistani Taliban to step up attacks in Pakistan to tr- attempt to do in Pakistan what the Taliban in Afghanistan had done in that country. And of course, the Pakistan Taliban is is not the same thing as the Afghan Taliban, but you know, ideologically, operationally, they're very much linked. And the Pakistani Taliban has long enjoyed sanctuaries in Afghanistan, which have, I think, become more formal since the Taliban takeover there. But that said, certainly, the TTP, I think, sees opportunities to strike in Pakistan at a moment when there's so much turmoil, particularly because there's so many distractions. And you know, it's very clear to me, and I was actually in Pakistan uh, just several weeks ago, uh, or back in late February, and one of my major takeaways from that trip was that even with this upsurge in attacks in Pakistan, we've seen 40, 50% increases in attacks 
in Pakistan from 2000, between 2021 and 2022, even with an upsurge in attacks that has included more attacks in major urban centers and including an attack in Karachi when I happened to be there a few weeks ago, despite this resurgent terrorist threat, there is no political consensus in favor of the type of major counterterrorism offensive that would be needed to address this threat. And that lack of a political consensus is in great part because there's there's not much of a consensus on everything because the, the political environment is so divided and toxic um, right now. The army has not been able to prioritize this, the terrorism issue because of its own internal uh, issues, as I mentioned before, as well as you know this issue of how, how should it deal with this terrible political crisis. The TTP knows that. And we've seen the TTP carry out a number of attacks just in recent months. Again, not only attacks in the western, southern parts of the country near the, the, the Afghan border, but also you know they've struck in Islamabad, they struck in Karachi several weeks ago. And they also have been striking the police. And the police are already under tremendous amounts of stress because you know they're out there trying to carry out arrest warrant orders. They're out there trying to manage these protests by uh, by con supporters. They're under a lot of stress. And the TTP, I'm sure, knows that the TTP has carried out strikes on police, even though the TTP's main target, as I understand it now, is the army. But I think the TTP sees opportunities to go after a police force that is just morale is really bad. They're under so much stress and so on. So yeah, I do think there is a connection between this worsening political instability and these growing numbers of terrorist attacks. The TTP senses an opportunity to capitalize on a very uh, on 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 opportunities that you know simply come out in just because you have so much turmoil playing out across the broader spectrum. Fair enough. Well, Michael, uh, pleasure to have you join us on Beyond the Indus this week. Uh, for those who don't already, subscribe to Michael's Foreign Policy Brief of South Asia or follow his Twitter or watch his innumerable podcasts on YouTube. I would strongly recommend that you do so. He's a pleasure to listen to. And uh, yeah, Michael, thanks for uh, taking out some time to be on our podcast. Well, thank you. I enjoyed the discussion. It wasn't a particularly happy one, but it was an important one. <laughs> So, Joe, what's your verdict? How do you think the Pakistan story is going to play out? Mm, it's, it's a, a sobering start to our podcast, uh, indeed. I mean, I mean, the situation in Pakistan is hugely concerning, um, and any potential deal with the IMF, which would likely lead to long-term, albeit slow relief, isn't immediately forthcoming. I, I think the difficult thing is, is that the current Sharif government, with them trailing in the opinion polls, you know, they seem reluctant to implement further austerity measures on the Pakistani population, which would be necessary to release this tranche of funding. But there are a couple of silver linings I've noticed coming out of this crisis. For instance, you're seeing a lot more tolerance for discussion and dissent within certain circles of the Pakistani intelligentsia and media. Uh, there's a lot more willingness to talk about taboo subjects and challenge hitherto untouchable institutions like the army and the elite, uh, perhaps because of Imran Khan. Things aren't looking great for Pakistan, but hopefully this unprecedented level of introspection and discussion is going to lead to solutions that will help Pakistan overcome its structural efficiencies and perhaps resume the road to recovery soon. Well, that's all for this week and our very first ever episode of Beyond the Indus. Do send us your feedback, your comments, and your most creative insults at beyondtheindus at gmail.com. A huge thanks again to everyone who's tuned in and see you next time.